Okay. Testing the mic now. Can you hear me way back there? Okay. Tonight I'd like to offer the Dhamma and talk about the ecology of compassion. The ecology of compassion. Meaning to say how our inner world connects with our outer world. So it's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago, he profoundly opened to, understood, and realized the liberating knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. These Four Noble Truths uh, need to be expanded on in their own Dharma talk, but I'm just going to give them to you in a nutshell this evening and refer to them. The first noble truth is a truth of our vulnerability as human beings. Sometimes we mention this first noble truth as the truth of suffering, but it means so much more and it goes so much more deeply than that one word, suffering. Vulnerability is a word that I think we can all relate to. So we open to and we begin to understand this truth of suffering, this truth of vulnerability in our practice here together in our training. We begin to investigate the cause of suffering or the causes of suffering in ourselves. We begin to realize through seeing both of those and doing our practice the possibility to realize the end of suffering momentarily, and sometimes so much more deeply that we see the weakening of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own minds, and even the uprooting of it at certain stages of the practice. We know how to do this through our training because we develop what is called the path of practice, the Eightfold Noble Path, which that too takes its own Uh, various and multiple Dharma talks in order to fill out. What the Buddha said about all these Four Noble Truths and especially the Eightfold Noble Path is this is the advancement of the holy life, the ceasing, the the stilling, the direct knowledge to enlightenment or to the end of suffering. So it's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, he was reluctant to share what he realized, what he understood, the liberation, the deep liberation that he came to, because he thought that listeners without direct experience would be stuck in theoretical knowledge. It's, you know how easy it is to hear something that seems true to you, that seems to fit our present belief systems, and we can just say okay to it. Yeah, that's nice. But to realize it ourselves is a whole different matter. It it takes training. So people, he thought, people really needed to practice, to actually train in understanding, in meditation, not just cognitively knowing about these Four Noble Truths, or any other part of the path. So it's said that a celestial being, uh, a being not in the human realm, but 
coming from what we call in the Dharma one of the heaven realms, came to him and reminded him that there are beings who are suffering in the world, but they have little dust in their eyes. And actually, believe it or not, those beings are us. (laughs) Because we're here. We're willing to open up. We're willing to see what's going on beneath the surface of the busyness of our lives. Beings who could hear the teachings, those are beings with little dust in their eyes, who could hear the teachings, actually apply them in the training that were being offered, and understand experientially what the Buddha understood. And this is uh, what we're doing here together. It takes uh, a step-by-step, methodical way of understanding it. That's why it's really important to take the teachings in every morning at 8.15 for everybody to be here because those that's actually the most important part of our offering because that's where you train in understanding what to do today, which kind of piggybacks on what happened yesterday, and then how to go forth. So you can't just... It's not just about being quiet and walking slow and sitting you know, in stillness. We have to learn how to do that in our practice, moment to moment. So with that reminder from a celestial being, compassion arose in the heart of the Buddha. It, it arose as a strong and unnatural inclination for where he was in, that, in his path at that time. It said that from that compassion he decided to share this liberating knowledge which has been handed down to us by our own teachers through the ancestry of our teachers and now we're handing it down to you as best as we can with the the knowledge and we're still learning, handing down to you. So these precious teachings we're all benefiting from today are coming from this great energy of compassion. And this is the wave that we're riding on in our lives today, this great energy of compassion. This is, we're in the world cycle where a Buddha has been present, and we can learn from that. So it's important to use this precious time wisely. My teachers, our teachers, always used to tell us, make every moment count, not to strive or be tight around it, but do our practice with balance and with great nobility and sincerity. Use, Use the time that we're given here. So it's said that compassion is one of the most beautiful feelings a person can have, a human being can have. And I'm sure all of you Uh, and some of you maybe more than others because of what you've gone through in your life, have experienced this ability to open one's heart. And without, uh, without closing down to whether it's difficult, without closing up or holding tight because we prefer something else to happen, but we can open up without any delusion, without any ignorance, Ignoring with that, without ignoring what's hard within us or what's hard around us. We can face it with a great deal of clarity and courage. So it's a genuine caring, this beautiful feeling. It's a general 
a gen, genuine connection. So at first, what we learn is a connection with ourselves, this connection to really open our hearts to what's difficult. And a lot of our practice, no matter how long we've been in practice, until we become fully enlightened and or Buddha, uh, or any, uh, any stage in the practice, we will always need compassion. Or we'll always um, uh, feel beautified by it. There might be some times when we open easily and we feel the beauty of compassion with us already. So we need this caring. As you can tell and you can verify in your own practice just these few days, unless we have this caring, it's very difficult to open to the very deep wounds that every single one of us in this room have had. No matter what culture we come from, our economic status, our uh, education, our age, we've all experienced wounds in our life. And uh, sometimes we continue to wound ourselves by not knowing how to overcome them, not knowing how to even open to them. This is a training we don't get in college, in universities. And this is why we need to come to a place like this where there is the support of silence, the support of this seclusion, the support of things being done for us so we don't have to busy ourselves in life. We can really understand how to open. We can really understand how deeply we need to care for our own wounds. To be able to face them is the first step. So we do that instead of closing down, which is um, one of the uh, far enemies of compassion. It's a far en- the far enemy of compassion is called cruelty. We're cruel to ourselves, we're cruel to others. When we're faced with some kind of woundedness in ourselves and others, and we close down, we, don't, we kind of ignore what's happening. We ignore it by getting busy, by doing something else that's more pleasant. We run away from what's happening. And in a way, I can't blame anyone for doing that. I experience it myself. It's very hard to open to what's difficult. So we tend to turn away from it. It is a cruelty. It's the cruelty of ignoring And this is called the far enemy. It's called the far enemy because you can see it from afar. We avoid or even strike out at it because it's too hard to face. This avoidance, ignoring, this striking out is uh, called that uh, far enemy. The near enemy is also a way that we don't really serve ourselves with compassion but we fall into pity for ourselves, a kind of pity where we're drowning in our sadness, we're drowning in our suffering. So we could say that the middle path is this powerful place of compassion. And on one side, we can veer towards cruelty, ignorance, aversion, pushing away. And another side, we can veer towards drowning in it, towards just being... um, so filled with our stories about what happened and what's going to happen that we don't face the actual feeling 
of being hurt. Sometimes it becomes more beautiful and it's rare when we can have this unconditional caring for the vulnerability that we have in our own hearts. And a lot of what we face in our first time of practice and our first days here is opening to that vulnerability. Just that vulnerability of facing what's what we've been hurt by in our lives or how we've hurt others that, we, that comes up in our memory when we're sitting here in this quietness. This is a very necessary part of our practice to actually be able to experience those times that we've been wounded and allow that covering or that armor that we've placed on it to just soften up and to let what needs to be faced or what hasn't been felt be fe- feel it, to be able to feel it. Or maybe it's old memories or nearby memories of how we've been hurt, how we've been hurt by injustices or inequalities or ways in just in society that all of us have felt that in one way or another in our families, in our communities. So know when it's compassion, but know the difference between, for instance, compassion and the near enemy of pity when we're drowning in our sadness or in our vulnerability. And also it can become very clear when we're pushing it away. And we need to open with compassion even to that. So when we can feel our own vulnerability, then we we get to have a sense of how it is for others. We get to, it's a way of that um, ecology of compassion to start taking place, where we start to see, just as I feel this way, so too others feel that way. Just as I feel hurt in something that happened in relationship, so too that other person feels the same or a different level of hurt. And it, it brings a connection. At first it brings a connection because of the shared suffering that we actually realize and connect with. But then it brings a connection in a place of compassion. But first the suffering comes that we can, we can open to. So it's said that the ability of compassion to arise happens most powerfully when it's connected to mindful awareness. And mindful awareness becomes even more powerful when we have compassion. Because without compassion, then when we open to, for example, something that's difficult and we're, not, and we're harsh about it, we just push it away and we don't even see that harshness. But when there's compassion accompanying Uh, accompanying mindful awareness, which is the major training of our time here together, it becomes, both become very, very powerful. So it's a very um, uh, integral part of our time here, of our training together. Actually, compassion is very, very close to metta, which you are learning during this week. And those of you, many of you have learned it already, but you're deepening into it now. Just doing it again and again deepens us to it. When this unconditional goodwill or this unconditional caring 
for ourselves and others, which is metta, which is loving kindness, when that opens to something that's difficult, it naturally becomes compassion. So even in your metta practice, you may already be feeling what is real compassion. How many of you, when you've been doing metta practice, you come across something that's really vulnerable in yourself or something that's difficult in someone else? How many of you have felt that today? Just quite a few of you. Well, in that moment when you stayed with it, your metta naturally became compassion. And so our teacher used to always use two words together. I never remember him saying just metta. Metta means loving kindness. He also said karuna, which means compassion. So he always said metta karuna. Offer your metta karuna to yourself, to others. So just know that it's already happening in your practice. Sometimes you can just notice, the, oh, that was compassion. My heart opened to something difficult. So this is a feeling of a combination of things that we feel. We might not name it in the moment or just all by itself as compassion. Sometimes we feel we're just in, in our world in the West and those of us who have raised in um, the Judeo or Christian parts of our philosophy or our spiritual upbringing or any of our upbringing um, uh, represented here in this, uh, in this time today together. We feel a sense of grace. That's the way I was raised as a Catholic, so that's an easier word for me to use. We feel it just a sense of grace as an ability to, for some reason, be able to open to what I thought I would never be able to open to. It also feels like whatever is going on, we feel gentle towards it. That can be a sense of compassion being there. We just feel instead of harsh towards it, or instead of closing down around it, we just feel, okay, we can feel this with gentleness. Sometimes we just feel really strong. We feel really courageous about being able to handle whatever is in front of us or within us. It just feels like a moment of strength. And maybe there are only moments, but we have to notice those moments. So here in your practice, what we're urging you is to notice those beautiful moments too. We talk a lot about you know, the attitudes of mind that are unwholesome in the beginning of practice because that's a lot of what we face and feel. But there's a lot of these moments of grace. So feel them, notice them, note them, acknowledge them as well. It's a really tender part of ourselves that's able to face the emotional crises that we might have in our lives, the inner storms, our personal tsunamis that are happening right now or that have happened in our lives that come up when we're feeling quiet. So see if you can just relax around what's happening during those times. It's really helpful to remember a lot, relax, Whatever's happening, you can just let yourself relax around it. What's coming up is wanting to be known. It needs to be known. And then see if you can allow it 
to be known. These are two steps that you can take when you're starting to face something that's difficult. See if you can relax around it. See if you can allow it to be known, to actually be felt. It's interesting that this mysterious way of feeling this emotion, compassion, combined with what's difficult to be felt, makes us feel complete. I don't know if you've experienced that yet. There are quite a few of you who are quite mature meditators here. You probably have felt it and not known how to acknowledge that. But when we can feel something really difficult coming up, or something that we're kind of shaky around, but there's this ability to just stand, to be the bearer, the, the bearing witness to it or with it. And it feels like a sense of completeness, like things came together and conditions came together for a moment and we knew that we could face what we needed to face. So it's feeling this completeness as a human being when we, when we can kind of review our own broken hearts, you know, what, what happens during our lives. It's part of life to feel that, our losses. It contains a considerable measure of distress in our lives to go through um, our life in general and definitely to go through a practice like this. A lot of people who come to the practice will say, this is not for the faint of heart, you know, this kind of practice. I think I mentioned, um, some of you have been with me a a while, I I had mentioned a time when I was reading a, um, a book. This was just kind of a mystery book. I I rarely do that, but it was the only one available that helped me avoid something, right? So I was reading that book, and somewhere in their book, there were two spies. And one spy said, uh, asked the other, well, what what do you do? And, you know, they are confronted with all kinds of um, things they have to do that are life-threatening. And so one spy said to her, well, what do you do when you're not doing this? And the other spy said, well, I practice Vipassana. And, <laughs> and, um, the, or something like that, describing what our practice was. And the other spy said, oh, that's hardcore. You know? <laughs> and that's what it is. And I, don't, I hope that I'll still see most of you in the hall tomorrow morning. But it's... <laughs> But you can be sort of have a wholesome pride in yourself, that you're here, you know, that you're still here, that you haven't left yet. And, <laughs> and if you're thinking about it, you won't. <laughs> uh, it's okay for the thought to arise, but let it go by, too. So one time in an old journal, I found this passage where I'd written about a quiet desperation. Um, I was with my teacher, Manindraji, and I said, you know, it, it just seems like I go about my life. I'm trying to handle my life, and I'm, I'm doing okay with my life. At one point, I had three little kids, and I had to do it on my own. I said, it seems like it's okay, but actually, I have this quiet desperation. Like, I don't know what's going on with that. I can't put it on my condition in life or... I wasn't, 
you know, I didn't have a terrible childhood, even though my father left when I was little, but it wasn't terrible. Um, I've heard a lot of stories that, you know, I just feel grateful that I, I had the amount of dukkha that I did to be able to open to life. But there's a lot of dukkha in this world that I've faced with others, too. But this quiet desperation was this very acute awareness since my early years to understand the meaning of life. Like, I'm not really getting it. I I really want to understand, why am I living? Why am I a human being? What, what What is my value in this world? And so it was then that Manindraji said that what I was feeling, this quiet desperation, was spiritual urgency. And I think most of you, if not all of you, have that because you're here. There's, this, there's something that prompts us to do something like this and to say, what am I all about anyway? What's life all about anyway? I want to discover something more deeply than what can be known you know, on, from any reading. I don't, I don't just want to agree with something I hear that sounds so transcendent. Ascendant. I want to understand it for myself. It's easy to agree and say yes and try to live in the vibes of another great guru or person. But to do it ourselves is a whole other story. So I asked him at that time, what is the meaning of my life? What's the meaning of my being born? And Manindraji replied just really easily, very simply and directly, the meaning of your life, the reason for your being born was to develop compassion and wisdom. It was very straightforward. And it it put my life kind of in perspective then. Okay, these are the basics. So now how do I go forth into that? To develop compassion was a very big deal for me. And it's, one of, it's the first thing that we need to do in order to develop real wisdom. It's said that the ability to open to deepening uh, layers of wisdom requires a lot of compassion. But what happens when we open up to that wisdom is what comes out of that wisdom is natural compassion, an even deeper compassion for ourselves and for the world. Not this compassion that sort of says, oh, I feel compassionate. It's a compassion that says, I'm going to help. I'm going to do something in my life. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to be a voice. I'm going to stand up and say, this is wrong or this is right. And not just be quiet about it. So that's that's what happens when you compassion opening to wisdom, wisdom opening to compassion. And it goes on and on. The circle goes on and on. So this quality of compassion is equally important part of what is called the two great wings of the Dharma. Some of you may have heard that. And how many of you have heard about the two great wings of the Dharma? Yeah. They are compassion and wisdom. So each one strengthens and serves each other and becomes balanced. So we have compassion enough to know when to help, but wisdom enough to know 
when is the right time, when is the right words, what is the right attitude, not just with ourselves but with another person. So we learn the balance between the two as well. It's said that this balance between compassion and wisdom is this, uh, these two wings which both have strength and when they both have equal strength it allows this great bird of the Dharma to fly, to really be liberated into the spaciousness of liberation. So I'd like to read something from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, these are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. And a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. Both reinforce each other in their goodness, in their strength. And once we realize how interrelated we all are, it is hard not to feel some level of compassion for another. And once we feel compassionate to others, we realize our interrelatedness. This compassion is really important, especially on the relative level of life, when we need to interrelate with one another. We need to know how important it is to connect with our goodness, as, as I think uh, Josen was talking about during the metta practice, to really connect with our goodness, with our intention not to harm. That intention not to harm, those five precepts came from compassion. Sometimes people wonder, where is compassion, you know, in the precepts? Well, those five precepts came from compassion so that we don't harm, so that we're coming from that place into life as we're relating to one another. And when we do relate with one another in that way, our practice can deepen because we have a sense of ourselves of goodness. And that sense of goodness of ourselves, that sense of not harming, is a basic, um, is a basic platform that wisdom grows from, is a ground that wisdom grows from. So we really need to know how interrelated all of that is. Relationship of compassion with the understanding of wisdom, emptiness. So the Dhamma or the Dharma means the truth of how it is, the true nature of reality. When we talk about the Dharma, and a lot of times you might hear us use the word Dhamma, that Uh, comes from the Pali school of um, the Theravada school. This is what we are opening to understand more deeply and clearly here, the natural unfolding of this universal truth of life, the way it is, not not scientifically, not philosophically, not, um, you know, in, in other ways where kind of religiously, but it's a way where we're understanding the laws of nature in our own mind and heart, the cause and effect relationship of everything, what leads to good, what leads to harm, what leads to harmlessness. And we, what we want to do then, when we really realize what leads to harmony, we go in that direction and we refrain from doing harm. 
So in these rare conditions of more quiet and stillness that we have here in this outer environment and this relative uh, solitude that we have without as many distractions, the inner environment has a chance to quiet down. It doesn't have that chance when we always need to, um, you know, when we can get to something else easily that will distract us. So with all the skill sets that we're learning here, our hearts and minds can become like a still forest pool and we're able to witness what is going on beneath the surface of things. What's fueling our habit patterns? What's fueling those incessant thoughts that come and go and we can't seem to get rid of them or avoid them? What's underneath all of that? We're coming to see that. And this is the first part of our practice. Of course, there are many beautiful experiences we have, but also those are difficult to open to sometimes. Open, opening to the beautifulness of forgiveness or gratitude or, or generosity, letting go. We open to those moments too. And it's, it's hard in the beginning of practice when I realize that we mostly see what's difficult. But the other things happen too that we don't just name them. We're not, we're not uh, in, in the practice of acknowledging them. So encouraging that for you also. Acknowledge when you feel that sense of goodness in yourself, non-harming. You're really following the precepts. So in our process here, we become aware of the conditions at every level that are in constant flux. That can cause a lot of vulnerability when we see our inwardly what's causing, what's seeing a lot of changing in, in our feelings, in the sensations in the body. We bring into it, of course, remembrances and the knowledge of the situations in the world around us. I mean, still, in the first days of practice, it's with us very much. Economically, socially, politically, environmentally, all of these things affecting one another. This interconnectedness, this ecology of life that we're in. The unrest, the injustice in the world around racism, sexism, ageism, gender bias of all kinds, and much, much more. And... In fact, even worse than that is the fact that we don't acknowledge it. You know, we don't want to face it. And now, so we're being courageous enough to just call it out, to say that this is what we're all experiencing in this world. This is the truth. This is the reality of our lives. We can't go on ignoring it, or else the same problems are going to come to us over and over again. Of course, the elements of earth, air, fire, and water endlessly interacting with one another. This is all changing our environment. We're responsible for a lot of the change in our environmental atmosphere. And so are we becoming more aware of that? There's a lot of vulnerability around us, in our worlds, within us. And in this ever-deepening practice, we begin to really face that to face the vulnerability, to face this dukkha, 
You'll hear that word a lot in the Dharma. Dukkha means a lot more than just suffering. It's vulnerability. One, um, I think it was in the path of purification, the, the Sudhimaga, Dukkha is described as um, the oppressive nature of reality. It, it's so true. I mean, we see it a lot in our, in our history. Uh, so we begin to understand that we have these underlying causes of why we feel this way, why we come into practice and we, we feel unsafe sometimes because of historical things that have happened in racism, sexism, all of that. And just many, many ways that we feel this underlying vulnerability. And we're, we're trying to be here together and to help each other heal from that. And actually, the Four Noble Truths is a way that the Buddha pointed out how we could heal ourselves. So I want to connect this beautiful quality of compassion with the Four Noble Truths and just fill that out a little more. When the Buddha started out with this statement of reality that we're all faced with as human beings, this first noble truth, he used the words dukkha satcha. And sometimes it was wrongly uh, translated to life is suffering. You know, when um, the Buddhism started coming to the West and life is suffering, well, what a way to invite people to practice. Um, So we're trying to kind of clear that up right now. (laughs) Um, Sacha, if you look at those two words, sacha means truth. And dukkha means um, the unreliability of life to give us everything we want and for it to last. It's a lot more words than just suffering. The unreliability of life to give us what we want and to make it last. So it's just even not, we are unreliable, you know. So we, it's the truth of how it is. We can't fall back and make bad excuses for our bad behavior sometimes. But all of life is like that. It's constantly changing. So it's this oppressive nature that we're always facing, this vulnerability in our hearts that we're always facing. So the first noble truth means that there is the truth of this vulnerability. There is the truth of this unreliability. There is a truth of impermanence. There is a truth that things arise because of conditions coming together and they fall apart on their own due to conditions. So the first noble truth means a lot more than just suffering. And we're coming to understand that in our practice. So when I first heard this, the first noble truth, from someone that I could came to a place in my practice, I could really understand it. I actually realized that I, for the first time in my life, I really felt met. Because where the teaching was starting from was starting from realizing what's the problem. The problem is there is the truth of suffering. This is, this is where the disease is. And this is what I have to look at. What's the cause of this, which is the second noble truth? Can I investigate that? And upon investigating it, we can learn that it does have its end. 
It can be momentary or it can be gradual over the years, the letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it gave me permission to accept myself when I heard this first noble truth. It gave me a sense that I'm really being seen and understood for the human being that I actually am. I'm not trying to be, you know, some person floating in the sky with a halo around their head. It's, it's just taking me, accepting me where I am. And that was really important to me. Not to be in denial of where I was, not to try to always be getting someplace else where I was not, but first realizing and accepting where I am right now. So throughout his life, he taught, the Buddha taught that we need to continually open to this, but not with this striving, not with this like, I got to do this, not with this kind of a warriorship, but in a gentle way. We can be gentle warriors. We don't have to be um, you know, hard, harsh with ourselves or what we open to in ourselves. We can do it with tenderness. So sometimes this gift of compassion is simply someone bearing witness to the ups and downs of our own life. And that's what we do as guides, as spiritual friends to you. We're bearing witness a lot and giving you some feedback or some, perhaps some support that helps you to open to that with more balance. This is, this is our responsibility here. And so we try to do that um, and try to help you do that without judging yourself or others, um, knowing and knowing truly how it is. This is part of, this is part of opening. This is part of our life right now. It said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is opening to suffering, is opening to this vulnerability. So I'd like to read something from uh, Khalil Gibran, one of my uh, favorite loving uh, poets. And this is about being able to open to what's difficult and coming to that beauty of compassion. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding, even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So we always think about this, oh, you know, why am I not happy or peaceful right now? But if we could only understand how incredibly powerful it is to open and acknowledge and be gentle with what we're opening to, this is a great thing. This is a great thing in our practice. And I hope you're really getting that. So we start with the basic goodness of metta. We turn that metta to what's painful, and that becomes compassion, as I uh, described before. One of um, the great teachers in the... She used to live 
they used to live in the Bay Area, great Buddhist teacher Agnes Au, had written this in the Shambhala Sun, which it, it's always spoke to me. And so I frequently read it when I'm talking about um, uh, dukkha and compassion. I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. So that means when we're stripping naked, it means we're letting go of all the habits and beliefs that have wrongly guided us in a way, that have not brought us to a place of real peace, but that we keep letting happen and following because of of just out of habit, basically. And that keep our hearts, our own hearts and others in bondage. But what, what we're doing right now when we just open to those places is we're cutting the bonds. We're cutting the bonds that have held us in misunderstanding, in wrong knowing. So we learn to face what has gone on in this inner terrain unchecked, previously unchecked. That's part of our training here. Unconsciously, oh, unawarely, of how that has had an effect on our lives. And opening to parts of ourselves that we're not used to seeing, feeling and states of mind that we haven't acknowledged before. It's wondrous to me and it's wonderful to me, for me, when I hear myself acknowledging times when I felt shame or times when I've experienced not only being prejudiced against, but times when I've experienced my own prejudice. And I could accept that and I could say, wow, that's what it feels like and feel compassion for that awful feeling. So we open to the underpinnings of our personality as painful as it may be. I love this um, great comedian and she's also a philosopher, Lily Tomlin. (laughs) Many of you know her, right? How many of you heard of Lily Tomlin? Well, I'm going to quote her now. (laughs) Um, Self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. Uh, So that's a truth, right? And um, I came across something else that was really true, connects with this. Reality is a major cause of stress. I try to avoid it as much as I can. So... All of these things we come to open to, this shame, prejudice, unworthiness, this feeling of guilt, this feeling of being less than, this feeling of being better than, all our entitlement moments, you know. So I I don't know about you, but I have a a fair amount of cringing moments. <laughs> I do, after all this practice. But at least I'm not lost in them. You know, when there's mindfulness of them, it's not being lost in that. At least mindfulness creates kind of a space and that non-identification with what's being known. So, so you know, gaining, um, lessening and lessening the defilements. I love what Manindra used to always say. 
uh, my first teacher, I used to be able to, because he stayed in my home a lot and was with me during kind of like my growing up days in the Dharma. And I used to call him on things too. I used to say, Manindra, gee, are you upset? Because I'd see kind of an upsetness come on his face, you know. And he would say, no, he would say, no, upsetness is there, but upsetness is not me. And, and then I would think, oh, that, that's kind of like, you know, what we call a, um, just kind of going to anatta and uh, non-selfness and claiming that, you know, and I'm, I don't know if that's really true. Uh, I would say, it, think at that time, and I'd say, Manindraji, are you feeling upset? And he would say, my path is not yet finished. <laughs> like, like he still has a ways to go. So I liked saying that because I like, you know, I like being transparent that I'm, you know, I still have a ways to go. All of us do up here. I, I don't think anybody up here would disagree with me. So, so, His Holiness is the Dalai Lama would say, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Until you know in yourself that, that feeling of prejudice and know it in others, you, it's hard to have compassion. When you know that in yourself, then you say, oh, that's how it feels. Ooh, and I'm not, I'm not any different. But to come to places in yourself that feel shame also, feel guilt, feel not worthy, or not good enough, or not seen, these are a lot of things that we face in our woundedness. When I was going through something really difficult and hard to bear, I came across this writing by Mark Nepo, a poet and a writer. And he went through his own deep challenges, as many of you may know who have read him. And um, these are the words he said that helped me kind of transform what I, my relationship to what I was going through from a place of being attached to or identified with a lot of pain to a place of feeling, okay, this is going to transform my life if I can get through this. So this is what his quote was. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So I hope you know that about yourselves, that these things that are coming up, they can rub us the wrong way, they can feel terrible, but they're really making, you know, a beautiful diamond after this, you know, in this rough cut stone that I am. And so it's happening for all of us in the practice here. So we give us, it gives us a sense of courage, our own inner strength. Somehow we feel more complete as a human being. And then how it connects with our outer reality is that we ourselves begin to feel a growing sense of urgency to help and to do what we can in this world, to face, to take the steps 
Maybe they're just little steps to do what we can in this world to help the environmental situation, the political situation, the social situation, things that are really, um, that are really hurting people in this world, the injustices that are happening through all the biases. So we want to offer our gifts, even they may seem insignificant, but we consider them, we can consider them to be helpful. You know, one person I read about made, encouraged me to bring my own utensils to a place where I might be eating something so I don't have to get the plastic forks or spoons again. I mean, this is something that a small, we can do in a small way. Or um, a friend of mine on another island is discovering that you can make straws out of bamboo. So that person is going ahead and doing this with all the bamboo we have growing in the islands. So little things, offering our gifts, touching the world with increasing, um, slowing down. Everything's going so fast. There's so much complexity So we can touch the world with simplicity, with slowing down, touch the world with kindness. It's no small thing, you know, these things that I've just mentioned. And then equally as strong is being able to go within, to have that spiritual urgency to really go within more and more, even though it's difficult. For most of people, even though it's difficult, People come back, 99% of the people, that's my estimation, come back. I mean, even though they were, it was terribly suffering, you come out of it feeling strong. So some of you, um, you know, it's not those beautiful moments where we're just perfectly calm. That's not the aim of Vipassana. The aim of Vipassana is liberation of all greed, hatred, and delusion. So we need to go through it. So in the course of doing our practice here, we realize the importance of going deeper and deeper. We learn what creates harmony and happiness on an individual level and on a social level, and we go towards that. We learn what creates harm, and we turn away, we refrain, we restrain ourselves from that. As Nolito was talking about in the very beginning regarding the practice, the practices of uh, non-harming through the precepts. We refrain, we restrain from going there. So as His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops these atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, which has an undeniable infinite outreach into the world and our Mother Earth. So no small thing, these moments of kindness that you feel, compassion that you feel, you experience, and then you, the ecology of that inwardly is you connect with it outwardly. And then you see the beauty of that, and your heart swells with even more love and compassion. So it's this beautiful cycle that can happen in our lives. So um, 
there's a lot more and it's most important for you to experience this. So we use our words to encourage and to help and to guide, but you're the ones who have to experience it, who have to do the practice to experience it. It's not just listening um, and uh, you know being in, being maybe encouraged, maybe being uh, you see a path. You actually have to walk the path. Manindra and Upandita, both of um, they've been teachers for all of us up here, used to tell us in different ways, the Buddha solved his own problem. Now you have to solve your own. So any time we were depending on them, it was like, mm-mm, do it yourself. <laughs> and that helped us be very strong in our practice. So I'd like to end with this beautiful poem by Dauna Markova. And um, the poem is called, I Will Not Die an Unlived Life, and that's the name of the book that it's in. Um, I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as a seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. So this again speaks to the ecology of compassion, that deep interconnectedness. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. Thank you for your kind attention and your practice. Now we have some time for walking, and then um, we invite you to come back into the hall for the last sitting and the chanting of the Metta Sutta. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.